This is episode 10 of Cinescope, and I'm a real boy. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Chris Linden to talk about one of his favorite films, Pinocchio. Chris, how are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to have you. So you are another member of the Sideshow Sound Radio family, right? That is correct. I'm on a show called Mouse Music. I'm the Disney guy. (laughs) <laughs> you are the Disney guy. In fact, most of the time I hear your name, it's referred to as Disney Chris. Yeah. So how about you tell us a little bit about yourself and about that name and all that kind of good stuff? Well, I have a um, website called DisneyChris.com where I post a lot of audio from Disneyland and other Disney-related audio. And uh, I also have a podcast called Jiminy Crickets, which is a Disney <laughs> podcast, a weekly show, and uh, I've just been a big Disney fan since basically since birth. I like to edit audio, and so if you like Disney, if you like theme parks, be sure to check out my website. Yes, I've explored your website a little bit, and it's a very cool place for anybody who's even remotely a Disney fan, so definitely go over to DisneyChris.com and explore that when you get the chance after listening to this episode. (laughs) Before we get started, just a quick reminder to rate and review on iTunes. Now, something cool that's happening today, at the end of this show, after our discussion, we are going to announce a giveaway that's going to be taking place in the month of October. So make sure to stick around for the discussion and wait until afterwards, and you will find all the details you need to know in order to enter that giveaway and win something cool. So with that, are you ready, Chris? I'm ready. Great. Today we are, of course, talking about Pinocchio, the Disney classic. It was released on February 23rd of 1940, and because it's an animated film, there's a whole bunch of people who are in charge of various aspects. So the supervising directors were Ben Sharpstein and Hamilton Lusk, and sequence directors were Bill Roberts, Norman Ferguson, Jack Kenney, Wilfred Jackson, and T. He. That sounds like a joke, but that's what it said on Wikipedia, so... Yeah, his name was T. Period He. <laughs> and there you have it, people. <laughs> this uh, movie was written by Ted Sears, Otto Englander, Webb Smith, William Cottrell, Joseph Sabo, Erdman Pinner, and Aurelius Battaglia, based on the classic Italian children's novel, The Adventures of Pinocchio, by Italian writer Carlo Collodi. The music was by Paul J. Smith who went on to compose several other Disney features, The Three Caballeros, Cinderella, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, The Shaggy Dog, Pollyanna, Swiss Family Robinson, and The Parent Trap, as well as Lee Harleen. And together, they also composed the orchestral score for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And they also won the Academy Award for this film for original score for Pinocchio. Ned Washington contributed by writing lyrics for When You Wish Upon a Star, The music for that was by Harleen, and the two of them won the Academy Award that year for Best Original Song. And man, I've got to say, after watching this, it is so well-deserved. That is a beautiful song. Yes, it's the Disney anthem of all anthems. It is, and I'm sure we have more to say about it later in the show. Mm -hmm. Lastly, this movie stars Dickie Jones, Cliff Edwards, Christian Rubb, Walter Catlett, Charles Judels, Evelyn Venable, and Frankie Darrow. Do you recognize any of those names for anything else, Chris? Well, Cliff Edwards was the voice of Jiminy Cricket, and he went on to voice Jiminy Cricket in many other projects for decades to come after this film. But originally, Cliff Edwards was known as Ukulele Ike, and he was a um, singer and ukulele player, oddly enough, (laughs) during the 1920s. And he was famous for singing such songs as Singing in the Rain and Toot Toot Tootsie 
And jada, 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 jing, jing, jing. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, so he was famous before this film, and then he went on to become Jiminy Cricket, and he became a Disney legend. And uh, he was one of the only animated characters to appear in more than one animated feature. What was the other one? Was it Fun and Fancy Free? That's correct. Great. I'm glad I remembered that one. <laughs> <laughs> So moving on, what was your first experience with this film, Chris? I um, grew up in a time when the Disney films were not as accessible as they are today, where you can just log on to Amazon or iTunes and download any movie you care to see at any given time. The only time that you got to watch these films was when they were re-released every seven years in the theater. Disney had all of its films kind of on a rotation where they would re-release them theatrically. This was even before they put them out on VHS. Uh-huh. So the first time I saw Pinocchio was when it, when it was re-released in 1984, before it had ever been put on VHS. And my father took me to see it in the theater. And I fell in love with this film from the first time I saw it. It's such a powerful movie, and it's not what you expect. You think because it's a Disney movie, it's all cutesy and and cuddly. and But this film has a lot of dark moments in it. And um, although it does have cutesy moments in it, too. And it's a very powerful film and a very emotional film. And it struck a chord with me when I saw it in 84. I was about 11 years old when I saw it the first time. It was released on video a couple years later, and it was a big deal because it was one of the first major titles to ever get a VHS release. They released a lot of the lesser deal films on VHS, but Pinocchio was really the first time they released like a true classic on VHS and it was a really big deal I remember at the time. Okay. For me, Pinocchio is a movie that has always been there for both of us, even though it wasn't as widely accessible for you as it probably was for me. I do have Pinocchio on VHS, I believe. And growing up in the 90s, I probably watched it a few times. I definitely remember watching it, but I don't remember much of it from that time. I was growing up during the Disney Renaissance, and so all of my childhood memories revolve around the 90s Disney films. Aladdin came out the year I was born. Then you have Beauty and the Beast that came out actually the year before, and Lion King and Pocahontas, and all those movies are the movies that I more associate with my childhood. Mm -hmm. So this was very much like a first viewing for me in general, because I remembered so, so little maybe snippets here that you see in Disney clips all the time. But aside from that, it was nice to go into this and just sort of have a fresh experience. Yeah. And I, I loved it. I mean, it's nothing like I remember. I mean, like I said, I didn't remember much, but it's more than I expected it to be. Mm -hmm. And it's colorful and there's a lot of joy and there's some sadness too. And like I said, and like you said, there's some scary stuff and the art is fantastic. It's almost hard to believe that this movie was made back in 1940 and every single page was, you know, drawn by hand, every single frame. Uh -huh. So it's just a work of art for such an early piece of film. Yeah, it's also hard to believe that in 1928, which was only 12 years before this film came out, you had Steamboat Willie. If you compare Steamboat Willie to Pinocchio, it's like the steps that they took during that short span of time to go from that rubber hose animation to a fully lush and rich film like Pinocchio. It's just absolutely amazing how much those artists accomplished. And not a single computer was used in the making of Pinocchio. <laughs> right. It's, it's unbelievable. Especially like the scenes where Jiminy is walking around the city and so everything's miniaturized. And so there's this like incredible detail from his perspective. And then later at the towards the end of the film, when we're in the water with Monstro and mm -hmm. Geppetto and all of them, and the water effects are just incredible. Mm -hmm. it, the detail just in the water itself is just amazing. 
even the sound of their talking, it has a warble to it. They accomplished that by having the actors talk into a fan that was blowing in front of the microphone to make their voice warble while they were talking. Really? That is interesting. <laughs> yeah, a little fun fact there. <laughs> so how about we talk about the story? What, what parts of the story do you really like? Well, I really love how the opening, um, the first act of the film, all takes place in Geppetto's workshop. You never leave the workshop for about the first 30 minutes, really, of the film. It all takes place in Geppetto's workshop. I really love that about this film. And that workshop is basically a character all to itself with all the, uh -huh. the, the toys and the clocks and just all the beautiful background painting going on, you know, all the detail of the backgrounds in that workshop, the carved wood figures and everything that you see. I just love that scene, the whole scene from beginning to end where the blue fairy arrives and Geppetto dancing with the puppet on strings and how much he has a fondness for this little character, Pinocchio, and it's just very touching. I love meeting uh, Figaro and Cleo, the, the fish and the kitten that are Geppetto's friends, his little pets, and how they have personalities all to themselves. I, I love those characters. They're very endearing. And another part of the story that really stands out for me is the Pleasure Island segment, uh -huh. where they go to Pleasure Island and the whole changing from little naughty little boys into donkeys. I think it's powerful how they, they did all that. It's not really something you would expect to see in what's considered to be a children's film. It's very real, the emotions that are being portrayed when Lampwick transforms into a donkey. It's very frightening, and it really gives you a, a feeling of panic and horror, really. Uh-huh. The villain, the coachman, is just completely insane and one of the best Disney villains, I think, of all time because he's just so evil. <laughs> right. I the, the whole underwater segment is amazing. The, the animation with Monstro, the whale, the whale chase at the end of the film is an amazing climax to the story. Just how they animated all that water. I mean, even the water, you have to, you know, realize that even every little drop of water was animated by hand. You know, every wave, every little splash of water, the bubbles in the, in the ocean, all hand drawn. Pretty amazing. Oh, definitely. And, you know, I think, you know, maybe one of the deterrents from me watching this more often as a kid is how terrifyingly drawn that monstro whale is mm -hmm. at the end. And even the villains, I mean, like the coachman and like Stromboli, mm -hmm. they, they look truly menacing and they, they are scary individuals for children and they're supposed to be. They do a really good job of that. What I like about the story here is that it's simple and the message is actually pretty simple too. So there's no complex side story here and side story there and side character here none of that is there to distract from what they're trying to do with this movie and they're telling a father-son tale but they're also giving messages and lessons for kids about lying and about being brave and honest and unselfish and all of that there's nothing to distract from that and so i i just love how simple it is and because of its simplicity, you also get to sort of revel in all of the gorgeous animation at the same time. You know, the goal of Disney has always been to entertain, but teaching a lesson has always been sort of prominent and in the forefront as well. And, you know, in many ways, this movie is like a fable where you have inanimate objects or animals who are illustrating a point as a lesson for the kids. And so I think this is one of Disney specifically's earliest examples of that. Right. A lot of the silly symphonies that predated the animated features that were being done in the 30s, they kind of had a fable-type storyline to them as well. In fact, many of the Aesop's fables were directly turned into animated short subjects in the Silly Symphony series. So this was kind of a um, the 
magnum opus of that fable type storytelling that Disney was kind of leading up to preparing for during the 30s, which kind of led to this film. Right. And I also like that it features the magic and the fantasy elements that Disney is sort of known for throughout its entire history, Mm -hmm. but it's not really the focus here. Yes, Pinocchio is a talking puppet. Yes, there's a blue fairy. But no, those aren't really the the takeaways here. The takeaways, it contributes to the simplicity. It's very grounded. It's just part of the simplicity, the story message. But those elements, while they don't distract from anything, they sort of are there to attract children and keep them invested as a su- sort of supernatural element. It's more of a story of faith, believing in your dreams, and doing the right thing, then it is a story about magic. Those are the main themes, the main takeaways. They're very basic and human lessons that don't necessarily need the magic elements to be taught, but the magic elements help it along. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else as far as story goes, or do you want to talk about your favorite characters? Oh, goodness. I mean, I could go on and on about the story, but I love the characters. I love all the characters in this film, even the villains. I think my favorite character from this movie would have to be Jiminy Cricket, though. <laughs> you know, I, I completely agree. I well, In the first five minutes of this movie, we get a whole bunch of Jiminy Cricket. And I was sitting there sort of dumbfounded. I was like, why did I not like this character more as a kid? Why does this character not stand out more in my childhood memory? Because I was hanging on every single word that Jiminy said in this movie. I was engrossed just watching him. Yeah, and interestingly, he was an afterthought. They weren't originally going to make him as big of a character. In fact, in the original book... He was really only in in one scene, and he warned Pinocchio to do the right thing. And Pinocchio, I believe, if my memory serves me right, Pinocchio stepped on him and killed him. Not <laughs> <laughs> the original. Very book. different from what we have here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The book is even darker than this film. So Disney expanded the character because they just felt that they needed some sort of a a character to kind of tie all the loose ends together. And if you watch the movie knowing that, you can kind of see how everything's kind of going on around Jiminy Cricket, and he's just kind of a commentator. He's just kind of making his observations on the story that's going on all around him. He's not really a protagonist. He's kind of just a witness. He's kind of represents us watching the film. We're kind of watching what's going on with Jiminy. You know what I mean? Right. He's like a partial narrator in yeah. that sense. And he he's never really... There are only a couple of scenes where he really participates in what's happening on screen. Right. Like, for example, when um, the whole Monster of the Whale segment happens, he gets locked outside. <laughs> the, the, right. The, all the actions going on inside the belly of Monstro, but Jiminy Cricket's outside trying to get in. He's not really involved in that scene other than comic relief of him knocking on the teeth of Monstro trying to get in. You know? <laughs> I love his one-liners, too. He just has a lot of funny observations and one-liners. They're not like, you know, laugh out loud funny, but they're cute funny. You know, he just has a lot of cute, funny witty observations that he makes throughout the film and some of them are almost to the point of breaking the fourth wall a tiny bit it, mm-hmm. like especially in those er- the earlier scenes in Geppetto's workshop and one of the moments in that scene that I really enjoyed was when he was trying to get some sleep and all of the clocks were super loud all of a sudden and he he shouts out quiet mm-hmm. <laughs> and everything freezes because what Jiminy says goes unless you're Pinocchio I often wondered, and I was actually thinking about this, watching it today, re-watching it, was it Jiminy that really made the clocks all stop, or was it because the Blue Fairy was about to appear, and her magic made everything freeze in time when she was about to appear in the room? Well, those events do line up pretty closely, and I sort of had the same thought, so I think it could go either way. I like 
I like Jiminy thinking that he's the one who caused it. Yeah. But then it probably being <laughs> actually a result of the Blue Fairy. Yeah. And that kind of reminds me of something else that's kind of interesting about this film. A lot of what happens in the film is not fully explained, and it's left to your imagination to kind of fill in the blanks how these events are happening. For example, the main evidence of that is how do the kids turn into donkeys? It's never fully explained how that, what causes that. And you're thinking, is it because of all the stuff they're consuming, the cigars they're smoking, the food they're eating in Pleasure Island, you know, the popcorn and cotton candy and everything, Right. And the beer that they're drinking because they're being bad kids and drinking beer and everything. (laughs) (laughs) And you wonder, is this why they're changing is because there's something in those things that's making them change. But then when Pinocchio escapes Pleasure Island in mid transformation, because his ears have sprouted and he's grown a tail. Did he not turn into a donkey because he escaped Pleasure Island? So was it not what they were consuming that made them change, but just being in Pleasure Island that made them change? That's a question that's never fully explained, and you just kind of have to use your imagination to kind of figure out how that happened. And that's what's interesting about films from that era, because films today explain everything. And you know, a good example of that, for that specific instance, um, I remember another Pinocchio movie that wasn't Disney that came out, in, I think, the late 90s that had Jonathan Taylor Thomas at the height of his popularity. Mm-hmm. And in that film, they turned into donkeys by going under this waterfall, I think, on this roller coaster. And that's what transformed them. So there's an example uh, more modern films being super explanatory and giving you all the answers. Whereas you're right, I, I really do like that the solution is a little bit more ambiguous in the original Pinocchio film. Right. Let's talk about Pinocchio, the character specifically. What do you like about him? I like how he's portrayed as a blank slate that's learning as he goes along. Right. He's very naive. Yes. He knows enough to be able to speak and to be curious about things. It's it's not like he was born without any intelligence whatsoever. But it's just interesting how they kind of like... How much does he know? How much does he not know? I think there was a a kind of a balance that they had to come up with to make that believable. Um, And I think they were successful with that. For example, when him and Geppetto are going to bed after all the events of the evening and, you know, the fire incident and everything that happens. And Pinocchio is is, he's saying, we got to go to sleep. And he goes, why? Because you have to go to school tomorrow. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Because you have to learn and get smart. Why? (laughs) And eventually he just says, because. (laughs) Yeah. And he goes, oh. (laughs) Right. That that, that reminded me a lot of my my cousin. My cousin's 10 years younger than me. Mm -hmm. And so when I was 11, 12, 13, when he was first learning to speak, that age is just eternally curious and they ask mm-hmm. probably a million questions a day and i don't think that's much of an exaggeration and pinocchio is very much like that at least at the very beginning of this film after his transformation to living yeah exactly but he knows enough to it's just an interesting like fine line that they walk because he knows enough to be able to speak and and walk but he doesn't know what fire is you know it's kind of a fine line. And I think they captured that fine line perfectly in his character. I think that this is definitely a hero's journey. He learns quickly in this film and he ends up saving his father. He goes from being a naive kind of mischievous boy to being a hero. And uh, you're along for the ride. And it's a believable transition from that. I think they captured that well, too. Yeah, even though this movie is only an hour and a half or actually a little bit less, nothing feels wasted and everything moves at a pretty good pace and it doesn't feel too short at the same time. It, it's 
a perfect length and they use every bit of time they have to tell the story they have and tell it well. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of nonstop entertainment. You, there's no real lulls in this film. You're entertained throughout. There's comedy, there's drama, there's... It just kind of runs the gamut of every emotion in this film. Right. You cry, you laugh, your heartstrings are touched. I mean, it's just everything. And I love the relationship between Pinocchio and his father. I just love his relationships basically with every character and how he relates to different personalities, how he relates to Stromboli, how he relates to Lampwick. He's very trusting of anybody. And that goes into sort of his naivety and sort of his innocence and mm -hmm. uh, innocent mischievous. And it, it's difficult to fault him for that reason, because he's, he's a likable character for one thing. He's not like an annoying little kid. He, yeah. We like Pinocchio. He's cute. He's, he's got a whole bunch of energy. And it's just fun to sort of see, oh, what's he going to get himself into next, you know? At the same time, he, he has this wide gamut of emotions that even just specifically Pinocchio experiences throughout the film, the joy, the sadness, the regret, and all of those, despite him being a child and a puppet child at that, it all feels very authentic and we identify with him pretty easily. Absolutely. I think that we all remember when we were at that age where we were asking, why, why? <laughs> right. And so he's definitely a relatable character, and he kind of represents what we all go through in our childhood and how we become, you know, we mature into adulthood. I think it's uh, definitely relatable. Yeah, and I, I really like Geppetto. You know, sort of some reading between the lines that you can do is his walls are covered with all these carvings and clocks and puppets and all that whatnot kind of stuff, this hobby stuff. So it's it's evident that he's constantly working. And his only companions that we see are Figaro the cat and Cleo the fish. So you can sort of surmise, this guy is probably pretty lonely. Mm -hmm. And so when he creates this boy out of wood and finishes painting him as we watch and he's humming along, he says, you know, wouldn't it be just the coolest thing if he was a real boy? And it's just an old man wanting companionship. And so when his wish is granted and he wakes up and he's disbelieving at first, but then there's this this song and dance number where they're just jumping around and they're having a good time. And it's fun to see his joy and his excitement that he has somebody with him now. He's also like immediately switches on father mode. Mm -hmm. There's There's no doubt. It's okay, this is my creation and now it's alive. He's my son. He never hesitates in that that belief. And when his, his, it's funny how his first thought is, oh, you've got to go to school in the morning. And then uh, later on, he's desperately searching for him when he's when he can't find him. Yeah. And yeah. he he sacrifices life and limb to do whatever he can to protect and to find Pinocchio. And so he's he's just a great father figure right off the bat, despite him not really being in that position before. Yeah, I love the moment where he's looking for Pinocchio and he's out in the rain with holding a lantern and he's he's shouting out Pinocchio and Stromboli's wagon rolls by. I think that's a really great moment right there. Right, because Pinocchio is inside the wagon yeah, and so, so the, the, their paths are crossing and yeah. they, they don't even realize. Yeah, exactly. And you already mentioned these characters, but I wanted to mention both uh, Figaro and Cleo and also Gideon, because these are all characters who don't have lines, uh, but they're they're just fun characters and watching them mime everything or have these really human traits and these really animal traits all at the same time. They're just fun characters to watch. And uh, you probably know this, but something that I was reading while doing some research for the film, Mel Blanc was supposed to voice Gideon and uh, Mel Blanc voiced Bugs Bunny and hundreds of characters for Warner Brothers in particular and worked with Disney on a few occasions as well. And they, they decided to not go with Mel Blanc for the voice of Gideon because they decided it would be better for Gideon to not have a voice. And he adds to the comedy of those scenes. And, you know, despite them being not the, the best characters, Honest John and Gideon the cat are just, they're fun characters, even though they're not 
good role models. Right. They're kind of evil characters, but they're they're comedy relief evil, not like Stromboli and the Coachman. They're more comedy. Based. Right. They're sort of minions. That's yeah. That's exactly. basically their purpose. They're not yeah. operating on their own. They're doing stuff for other people. Right. Right. But one line that kind of gets me um, is um, when they're talking to the coachman and he puts a big bag of gold out in front of them. They're like, well, who do you want us to like they're willing to kill? (laughs) Right. And it makes it sound, you know, they kill pretty often, too, because that was the first conclusion he jumped to. Right, exactly. It's funny that there's two cats in this film and they couldn't be any different. Gideon is a cat and Figaro is a cat, but Figaro is more like a real cat and Gideon is a, you know, an anthropomorphic character. He's a humanoid character in a cat's body. So that's an interesting contrast. And I love how Figaro has a personality that kind of goes beyond what a cat is capable of comprehending, you know? Right. But he still has characteristics that are naturally cat characteristics. And I find that kind of that that fine line again that Disney knows how to how to touch is really nice. And that's another thing that Disney sort of has a history of doing. You've got. Pluto and Goofy, who are both dogs. Yeah. And they they serve very different roles and purposes. And only Disney could make a goldfish an endearing character. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I love it when Geppetto calls her his little mermaid. (laughs) It's so cute. (laughs) It's a really affectionate relationship. Mm Mm-hmm. They use kind of the same design of that character for the there's a scene in Fantasia with fish in the Nutcracker segment, and they look very strikingly similar to Cleo. And it's interesting because Fantasia came out the same year as Pinocchio. Uh huh. So if you ever watch Fantasia, you'll notice some of Cleo's cousins in one of the <laughs> scenes. <laughs> I'll have to look for that next time I watch. Yeah. Any other characters you want to talk about? Gosh, they're all fantastic. I mean, I love Stromboli. I love how he's just this hothead and he's got this really bad temper. And I love my favorite line that he says, shut up before I knock a you silly. <laughs> <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> right. And you were saying that you... You just like all the characters here. And this is an example of a film that every named character really serves a great purpose and Mm -hmm. fills a very specific role and isn't wasted whatsoever. No. Um, Even the coachman, who's simply the coachman, Mm -hmm. they're they're all the villains are despicable the way they should be. And the the heroes or the the characters we like are heroic Mm -hmm. and fun Mm -hmm. and exciting. Disney has always been very good about not wasting anything. Yeah. I'd say probably the weakest character for me. And it's just because of the plot and just the way the movie is constructed is the blue fairy. Uh, She's uh, adequate. I mean, she serves the purpose that she needs to serve, but you don't really get deep into her character like you do in the other characters. She's a little flatter and two dimensional compared to the other characters in this film but i mean she has some stiff competition with the other characters that she's surrounded by right she basically just fulfills the purpose of kickstarting the action and Mm -hmm. then closing off the film with a happy ending yeah exactly she's a means to an end well let's go ahead and talk about the music so you know i've always been the music guy and now here we are talking about a disney film and i feel inadequate compared to disney chris so i i'm excited to to hear you talk about the music a little bit more in depth than i probably can well of course one of the well not one of the but the most famous disney song ever written comes from this film And that is When You Wish Upon a Star, of course. It's basically the theme song for the entire Disney organization, sung beautifully by Cliff Edwards. 
And, you know, many people have covered that song over the years. Hundreds of people have covered that song over the years. Including my favorite musician, Billy Joel. But that's beside the point. <laughs> Billy Joel has, absolutely. Barbara Streisand. I mean, you name it. Anybody who is anybody has performed that song. <laughs> but listen, the best version ever is the original. Oh, I won't contest that for even a second. You know, this he is one of the sweetest sounding tenors I've ever heard. Yeah, it's just a delight, and you never get tired of hearing it. I mean, you've everyone's heard it hundreds of times, even if you're not a Disney fan like me. I mean, you hear that song, and it just brings you to a, a place in your heart, you know. It's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful message, beautifully performed, beautifully orchestrated. I mean, no wonder it won the Academy Award for Best Song of the Year. How could it not? Oh, I definitely agree. And I, I pulled up the lyrics, and I think probably my favorite set of lyrics from the song is, if your heart is in your dream, no request is too extreme. It's just a beautiful message. It's a beautiful song. And it really kind of exemplifies the whole spirit behind Disney as an entity and what Walt Disney himself stood for. I mean, what more can you say about it that hasn't been said? It's just a fantastic song. And you hear the theme of this song throughout the, the, the orchestration throughout this film. The background music is gorgeous. It's lush. It's beautiful. You hear When You Wish Upon a Star kind of interwoven throughout the film. And... Each character, if you pay attention, kind of has their own like musical theme. Uh -huh. Every time the character kind of has a scene that's focused on that character, you kind of hear their theme throughout the film. Like Geppetto has his special music that you'll hear when he's in a scene. And Jiminy Cricket has his do 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 you know. Uh-huh. Um, Gideon and and well, Honest John actually has more than one name. He goes by more than one name. His real name is Jay Worthington Foulfellow, but he tells everybody his name is Honest John, like any con man would. <laughs> but Gideon and Foulfellow have their own musical theme, which is High Diddle Dee Dee, an actor's life for me. <laughs> right. And then that, that song is actually sort of repurposed whenever they take Pinocchio and the others along with the coachman to Pleasure Island. And there's kind of a fun um, little version of it when they're in the uh, pub with the coachman kind of discussing their plans, where it's kind of like a honky tonk piano version of it where they kind of fade in and you hear kind of like piano like that you would hear in a typical bar of the early 1900s, you know, that very jazzy kind of sounding ragtime kind of sounding version of the song. And then it, you hear it throughout Pleasure Island played on a um, kaleidoscope. That's a great song too. High diddle dee dee. And then, of course, who could forget Give a Little Whistle? That was a really fun scene when I was watching it this time around. And there's all these, these little fun things like uh, when Jiminy whistles into his hat, yeah. says, give a little whistle. And he whistles and he goes, yeah. give a little whistle. And then he opens his hand from the hat and it echoes back in a lower key. I, that's so fun. Yeah. And then Pinocchio tries to do the same thing and it doesn't work for him. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then another great song is... Uh, I Got No Strings, and that's a terrific just dance routine number. I love that whole scene. It's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And that one's been sort of referenced recently with uh, Avengers Age of Ultron. Uh, yeah. it, it was a little bit creepier there, but yeah. just a fun, <laughs> fun tidbit. But I think that's one of the other songs that people most associate with this movie. So everybody knows When You Wish Upon a Star, but I would bet the second most named song, if you ask, name a song from Pinocchio would be I've got no strings. Interesting. Another song, the song sung by Geppetto at the beginning of the film where he's dancing with Pinocchio when he's still a puppet uh -huh. on strings, Little Woodenhead. Every single soundtrack release of Pinocchio has had that song without Geppetto singing it. It's always an instrumental version. They cut out 
Geppetto's voice in that. So when you hear the soundtrack album, you only hear the music. You don't hear the lyrics. The only time you get to hear the lyrics is when you're watching the film. That's a shame because I actually made a note about that. You know, being around Will and Wendell on Mouse Music with Sideshow, I'm sure you've heard the term diegetic before and know what that means. You know, last week I taught everybody what ostinato is. This week I'm teaching everybody what diegetic. So if something is diegetic, it means that it's actually taking place and is being performed in the world that you're seeing. So at the start of this film, when Geppetto's using Pinocchio as a puppet before he comes to life, he's singing that song along with the score. And so that is a diegetic moment. And it's just, that was one of my favorite musical moments in the whole movie was Geppetto singing along and you've got the score sort of accompanying him. It's like, he's creating his own soundtrack and we're getting to hear a more embellished version of it. Yeah. And he uses a music box to play the music. So there's another, it's not just an orchestra playing it's actual music in the room that's playing as he sings, which adds to its diegetic. Is that what the word? Yes. That adds to that sense of it being diegetic because it's not an orchestra playing. It's real live music playing within the context of the scene. And also what I love about that scene is how the sound of Pinocchio, his wooden feet banging on the wooden floor kind of is it adds an element to that music. It just adds this neat little element, the way that you hear the the pounding of the wood in time to the music as the puppet is dancing. I think that's a really fun little element to it as well. I like that. Yeah, there are a lot of sounds like that throughout the soundtrack, I think, the, the score in the film, where the music plays more of a character. Yes. Like there are moments when you hear this muted trumpet that's just being like a, it, it's it's solo muted trumpet and it's just a fun sound and there's lots of strings and Mm -hmm. the strings are the most prominent instrument featured in the score here. And so it's all just very nice sounding. And there are these moments when the the music is definitely the focus and it's like it's playing a character. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And Disney really, that was kind of a really new concept of how, Music was not really used as a break from the story, but it was used to advance the story as part of the story. That's something Walt Disney really sort of began with Snow White, how it's not just breaking into song for it to be a musical, which is kind of what Broadway was doing in the 30s (laughs) and early Uh 40s. But it was kind of revolutionary how he was using music to move the plot forward. This was kind of a a new concept in entertainment. And what happened was Rodgers and Hammerstein, a couple years later, wrote Oklahoma, which kind of did the same thing for Broadway audiences. But Disney did it first. Disney did it for Snow White first and then carried over that same concept with Pinocchio. I mean, before that, as far as musicals go, you know, boy meets girl, girl falls in love with boy. They have a falling out and then they just like break into song for no reason within the, (laughs) you know, but uh, yeah. So Disney kind of like songs like Whistle While You Work, it's showing how Snow White is cleaning the cottage of the seven dwarfs. It's moving the plot forward. It's showing action that happens within the storyline. Very revolutionary for its time. And people don't realize that today, that Disney kind of set the bar as far as that type of musical entertainment. Right. And nowadays you have Broadway musicals like Les Miserables that are completely sung through. And so the whole the whole story is told with music. So I, I can see how back then when you didn't really have anything like that outside of straight up opera, it was a new concept for this type of medium. Anything else as far as music goes? Well, I I just can't say enough about the musical score. It's not dated. It has a few dated signatures within it. Like there's a hoi polloi <laughs> moment <laughs> in when they're 
talking about what type of disease Pinocchio has, and they're kind of shaking their finger, kind of very jitterbuggy. There's a mo- couple jitterbuggy kind of moments in it that kind of set it in its time period. But for the most part, it's very, it, it stands the test of time. It's not a soundtrack that you listen to it and you think, oh, this is dated. This is 40s. This is, you know, this doesn't hold up to today's music. It holds up to today's music and it probably will for years and years to go. It'll never be dated. It, it's timeless. Yeah, I agree. There's none of the songs here. None of the music really sounds like it necessarily belongs in that period. I think you could slap it in any film that's out now and it would fit perfectly well. Yeah. Well, great. Um, So what are the takeaways for the movie here? Um, Well, I think that a big takeaway from this film for me is this shows what human beings are capable of. The whole concept of man versus machine, because nowadays everything is computer this, computer that, digital this, digital that. This shows that without all that technology, the level of achievement that the human mind and the human artist is capable of achieving, I think that that this is the greatest animated film of all time, in my opinion, because of the fact that it's all hand-drawn. It's just amazing detail. Just all the different special effects that they did, all without the aid of a computer, it just it, it boggles my mind. And watching it again today, I just, that's my main takeaway is, how did they do that without computers? And could they still do that today? Are we capable of doing that today? Even though we don't have to, because we have computers. That's my takeaway, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I think that's great. I wish that there were still some, at least some, hand-drawn animated films. And they've done it here and there throughout the years. I'm trying to remember, I think, wasn't Princess and the Frog at least partially hand-drawn? It was hand-drawn, but with the aid of computers, of course. Right, And, and I think Winnie the Pooh, the 2011 Winnie the Pooh film, was the same way. Yeah, well, what they do now is even the the two dimensional, they call them 2D animated films. All of the ink and paint that used to all be done by hand, painstakingly, they would paint each individual cell by hand. That's all done on computer now. That whole Uh process is, is all computers, even for 2D animation. All the coloring in of, of the cells is done on the computer. So that whole process of painting everything by hand is a thing of the past, um, even for films like The Princess and the Frog, which is a 2D film. So it's amazing to think that all every single frame of Pinocchio was painted by hand. Right. And like I said earlier, especially in those water scenes, those water scenes are unbelievable when you consider that they are hand drawn. Yeah, absolutely. And how they had like the, you could see kind of the the wave, the the reflection on the sea, the floor of the ocean, you know, you could see all the bubbles and the shaking of like when when the fish all got scared when he said the word monstro and swam away, there was like kind of a waviness to the background, you know, everything kind of because the water was shaking all in front of everything and you got that wave effect. I don't even know how they did that. That's incredible to me. But yeah, just uh, jaw-dropping. This film and Fantasia is probably, to me at least, the best examples of hand-drawn animation that's ever been done. Nothing has ever topped it, in my opinion. I don't think I can necessarily disagree. (laughs) Now, as far as takeaways from the story as presented here, uh, they're pretty obvious, so we don't need to spend a lot of time on them. But there's the lessons in morality and in doing the right thing. You have Jiminy, who is 
accompanying Pinocchio throughout the film. And he, whenever Pinocchio comes to a fork in the road that's right or wrong, he's the one who says, okay, Pinocchio, this is the right way. This is what you need to do here in order to be a good boy and eventually turn into a real boy. And of course, Pinocchio does the opposite and we see him suffering the consequences. Right. So it's a very clear picture for children. They make it very, very obvious that Jiminy is saying what's right. Pinocchio is doing what's wrong. And that's why all this stuff happens to him. And that's why he almost turns into a donkey. And that's why Geppetto gets swallowed by a whale and all, all that kind of stuff. And th- there's the, the Jonah parallel there. Yeah. Although it's because of Pinocchio's actions and not Geppetto's that he's swallowed. Right. Then there's the dangers of lying. You know, the the shtick for Pinocchio, you could say, is the the nose grows when he tells a lie. And that actually only really happens, what, twice in this movie? So it's not as prominent here as it is in other representations of Pinocchio. Right. You know, I never made the association for why it was his nose that grew whenever he told a lie until I heard the Blue Fairy's quote where she says, a lie keeps growing and growing until it's as plain as the nose on your face. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. So uh, that that was a, a fun little message there and the origin behind that part of the tale. And then on the flip side of those things, it's about the rewards of bravery and unselfishness and truthfulness. When Pinocchio does do the right thing, he's rewarded for it. I mean, what a concept. So I think this movie on the whole is, even though there's some maybe questionable stuff if you're not okay with your kids being exposed to beer and cigars and that kind of stuff. I mean, they're not presented positively here in any any way. Everything else is just so clear cut. This is what you should do, kids, and this is what you should not do. And if you do this, this kind of stuff will happen. If you do this, this kind of stuff will happen. So either way, I think it's a good film for kids at least of a certain age. Yeah, and I also think that's probably the main message of the film, but then there's also the message of believing in your dreams, the whole when you wish upon a star, your dreams come true, having faith and hope and believing in the fantastic, and if you wish and dream hard enough, your dreams really will come true. (laughs) Right, and isn't that still the slogan for the Disney parks, where, where dreams come true? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, all the way back to 1940, even though we didn't get a Disney park until 66, is that correct? 55. 55. I was thinking mm-hmm. something else. 55. Thank you. I'm glad I have you here. <laughs> <laughs> 55 for Disneyland and 71 for Walt Disney World. Right. I have a Disney World hat that tells me that, but I didn't remember the Disneyland <laughs> date. So thank you for that. <laughs> No problem. Any final thoughts regarding Pinocchio? Well, if you have not seen Pinocchio as an adult, see Pinocchio as an adult. <laughs> Definitely. Um, it's not the film that you think that it is. It's, it's stuck in that stigma that Disney often has of being for kids and cute and and not relevant to today's world and, you know, and just everything is all happy, happy, sugar and spice, saccharine, sweet, you know. But this is a really fantastic film. I mean, even if you just turn the sound off and look at it visually, it's incredible to look at as an adult because you appreciate the artistry more as an adult than you do as a child, you know. Right. I think this movie, it's great for kids and sort of teaching lessons, but it's even better for adults and just enjoying the craft of it and the music and all the good stuff yeah. to come out of it. And don't turn the sound off, by the way. No, that's not. You, you could, <laughs> that's not a recommendation. <laughs> no, I was just making a point, but definitely that would be a bad idea to turn the sound off. That's one of the great things about this film is is the music so and the voice uh the voice acting is fantastic in this film too so you don't want to miss that absolutely not (laughs) right i mean overall it's just it's a sweet movie and it's it's fun to watch and it's charming and it teaches some good lessons i mean it's it's the whole package it's just a great classic disney movie that i don't think anybody should go too long without seeing Mm -hmm. yeah 
Okay, well, cool. That is the end of the official 10th episode of Cinescope. Thank you for being on the show, Chris. Thank you for having me, and thank you for letting me talk about one of my favorite movies. Oh, for sure. You know, I, I've listened to Mouse Music, and I haven't yet checked out your Jiminy Crickets podcast, but it's been on my queue for a little while. So I've heard you talk about this movie in those settings before. And so I was excited to have you on the show to let you go a little bit more in depth this time around. Well, I really enjoyed it. And you can tell that I'm a huge fan of this movie because I named my podcast after a character from this film. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> so contact, you can find the Cinescope podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast or on Twitter at Cinescope pod. Please rate and review on iTunes. You can email feedback and ideas to the Cinescope podcast at gmail.com. And remember, you can also use that email address to contact me regarding co-hosting. I've actually had a couple of people email me in the last week talking about, hey, I, I'd be interested in being on the show. And so they will be featured at some point. I don't know when yet, but we will definitely get them on the show and anybody else who's interested in talking about a movie they love. Now, I mentioned at the start of the show that we were going to do a giveaway for the month of October, and here is where you get all the details for that. So this is how it's going to work. If you leave a review on iTunes, or if you have already left a review on iTunes, then you are going to be entered into a giveaway for a free copy, digital, DVD, or Blu-ray, your choice, of any movie that we have talked about on the podcast so far, including the upcoming October episodes. Anybody who has entered or will enter a review will be entered, and you have a chance at one bonus entry, so maximum of two entries, if you take a picture of your review and share it on social media. If you do share it on social media, make sure to tag me or the podcast on that form of social media so that I see it, and then I make sure that I count you twice. Now, once that is done, once October is finished, on the first episode of November, which is episode 14 and should release on November 3rd, I will randomly select one person to win the giveaway. So make sure to tell people about the show. Make sure to review on iTunes. And when you do that, you will be entered possibly twice into this giveaway for a free movie. So I hope that everybody will take advantage of that. I'm looking forward to seeing how this turns out. So that being said, Chris, where can people find you online? Well, lots of places. You can find me on Twitter at DisneyChris73. You can find me on Facebook under the name Chris Linden. That's L-Y-N-D-O-N, as in Lyndon Johnson, the president. Um, you can find my website. It's DisneyChris.com, home of the Disneyland Magical Audio Tour. My Jiminy Crickets podcast, you can find me on iTunes, um, Jiminy Crickets, exclamation point, not spelled out, exclamation point, <laughs> Jiminy Crickets <laughs> is an exclamation point. And I'm also, I have um, a website for my podcast, it's jcricketspodcast.blogspot.com. And then, of course, we mentioned Sideshow Sound Theater. And you can find the Mouse Music Podcast on Sideshow Sound Theater, either on iTunes or on the Sideshow Sound Theater website, which is spelled the British way of spelling theater. If you have trouble finding it, it's because theater is spelled T-H-E-A-T-R-E, not E-R, but R-E. So look for it under R-E. So yeah, that's basically where you'll find me on the... Um, the facey spacey and the <laughs> twitty page and all that good stuff right so everybody make sure you go and check out chris's stuff especially his disney chris website because that is just the coolest place for anybody who loves disney and loves the disney parks and wants to explore a little bit of the music and following chris on twitter you actually get is it a daily song of the day that you do chris yeah i i post it on my website i do a disney song of the day if you follow me on Twitter or on Facebook, you'll I post about the song that's been put on my website for that day. And for October, I'm doing a um, Halloween-themed Disney song every day this month, which is kind of fun. 
Yeah, that's a lot of fun. I always look forward to seeing what songs you recommend. Thank you. So to find me on Twitter or anywhere, so on Twitter is at Chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A, and then on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. Now, there were a lot of show notes today, a lot of contact information. All of those can be found at the website, which is thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you again, Chris. It's been awesome having you on the show, having another music person, especially a Disney music person. It, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. Great. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 10. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we will be back next week with episode 11. Have fun and celebrate movies. Mm-hmm.